Section 2 of Volume 1C of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dustin Tuttle. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688 by David Hume Volume 1 C Section 2 Chapter 24 Part 2 During this Parliament the King also bestowed favors and honors on some particular persons who were attached to him. Edward Stafford, eldest son of the Duke of Buckingham, attainted in the late reign, was restored to the honors of his family, as well as to his fortune, which was very ample. This generosity, so unusual in Henry, was the effect of his gratitude to the memory of Buckingham, who had first concerted the plan of his elevation, and who by his own ruin had made way for that great event. Chandos of Brittany was created Earl of Bath, Sir Giles Daubeny, Lord Daubeny, and Sir Robert Willoughby, Lord Broke. These were all the titles of nobility conferred by the king during this session of Parliament. But the ministers whom Henry most trusted and favored were not chosen from among the nobility, or even from among the laity. John Morton and Richard Fox, two clergymen persons of industry, vigilance, and capacity, were the men to whom he chiefly confided his affairs and secret counsels. They had shared with him all his former dangers and distresses, and he now took care to make them participate in his good fortune. They were both called to the Privy Council. Morton was restored to the Bishopric of Ely. Fox was created Bishop of Exeter. The former, soon after, upon the death of Beauchere, was raised to the See of Canterbury. The latter was made Privy Seal, and successively Bishop of Bath and Wales, Durham and Winchester. For Henry, as Lord Bacon observes, loved to employ and advance prelates, because, having rich bishoprics to bestow, it was easy for him to reward their services, and it was his maxim to raise them by slow steps, and make them first pass through the interior seas. He probably expected that, as they were naturally more dependent on him than the nobility, who during that age enjoyed possessions and jurisdictions dangerous to royal authority, so the prospect of further elevation would render them still more active in his service and more obsequious to his commands. In presenting the Bill of Tonnage and Poundage, the Parliament, anxious to preserve the legal undisputed succession to the Crown, had petitioned Henry, with demonstrations of the greatest zeal, to espouse the Princess Elizabeth. But they covered their true reason under the dutiful pretense of their desire to have heirs of his body. He now thought in earnest of satisfying the minds of his people in that particular. His marriage was celebrated at London, and that with greater appearance of universal joy than either his first entry or his coronation. Henry remarked with much displeasure this general favor borne to the House of York. The suspicions which arose from it not only disturbed his tranquility during his whole reign, but bred disgust towards his consort herself and poisoned all his domestic enjoyments. Though virtuous, amiable, and obsequious to the last degree, she never met with a proper return of affection, or even of complaisance, from her husband, 
and the malignant ideas of faction still in his sullen mind prevailed over all the sentiments of conjugal tenderness the king had been carried along with such a tide of success ever since his arrival in england that he thought nothing could withstand the fortune and authority which attended him he now resolved to make a progress into the north where the friends of the house of york and even the partisans of richard were numerous in hopes of curing by his presence and conversation the prejudices of the malcontents when he arrived at nottingham he heard that viscount lovell with sir humphrey stafford and thomas his brother had secretly withdrawn themselves from their sanctuary at gloucestershire but this news appeared not to him of such importance as to stop his journey and he proceeded forward to york he there heard that the staffords had levied an army and were marching to besiege the city of worcester and that lovell at the head of three or four thousand men was approaching to attack him in york henry was not dismayed with this intelligence his active courage full of resources immediately prompted him to find the proper remedy though surrounded with enemies in these disaffected counties he assembled a small body of troops in whom he could confide and he put them under the command of the duke of bedford he joined to them all his own attendants but he found that this hasty armament was more formidable by their spirit and their zealous attachment to him than by the arms or military stores with which they were provided he therefore gave bedford orders not to approach the enemy but previously to try every proper expedient to disperse them bedford published a general promise of pardon to the rebels which had a greater effect on their leader than on his followers lovell who had undertaken an enterprise that exceeded his courage and capacity was so terrified with the fear of desertion among his troops that he suddenly withdrew himself and after lurking some time in lancashire he made his escape into flanders where he was protected by the duchess of burgundy his army submitted to the king's clemency and the other rebels hearing of this success raised the siege of worcester and dispersed themselves the staffords took sanctuary in the church of cloyneham a village near abingdon but as it was found that this church had not the privilege of giving protection to rebels they were taken thence the elder was executed at tyburn the younger pleading that he had been misled by his brother obtained a pardon henry's joy for this success was followed some time after by the birth of a prince to whom he gave the name of arthur in memory of the famous british king of that name from whom it was pretended the family of tudor derived its descent though henry had been able to defeat this hasty rebellion raised by the relics of richard's partisans his government had become in general unpopular the source of public discontent arose chiefly from his prejudices against the house of york which was generally beloved by the nation and which for that very reason became every day more the object of his hatred and jealousy not only a preference on all occasions it was observed was given to the lancastrians but many of the opposite party had been exposed to great severity and had been bereaved of their fortunes by acts of attainder a general resumption likewise had passed of all grants made by the princes of the house of york and though this rigor had been covered under the pretense that the revenue was become insufficient to support the dignity of the crown and though the grants during the later years of henry the sixth were resumed by the same law yet the york party as they were the principal sufferers by the resumption thought it chiefly levelled against them the severity exercised against the earl of warwick begat compassion for youth and innocence exposed to such oppression and his confinement in the tower 
the very place where Edward's children had been murdered by their uncle, made the public expect a like catastrophe for him, and led them to make a comparison between Henry and that detested tyrant. And when it was remarked that the queen herself met with harsh treatment, and even after the birth of a son was not admitted to the honor of a public coronation, Henry's prepossessions were then concluded to be inveterate, and men became equally obstinate in their disgust to his government. Nor was the manner and address of the king calculated to cure these prejudices contracted against his administration, but had in everything a tendency to promote fear, or best reverence, rather than good will and affection. While the high idea entertained of his policy and vigor retained the nobility and men of character and obedience, the effects of his unpopular government soon appeared by incidents of an extraordinary nature. There lived in Oxford one Richard Simon, a priest, who possessed some subtlety and still more enterprise and temerity. This man had entertained the design of disturbing Henry's government by raising a pretender to his crown, and for that purpose he cast his eyes on Lambert's seminal a youth of fifteen years of age, who was son of a baker, and who, being endowed with understanding above his years and address above his condition, seemed well fitted to personate a prince of royal extraction. A report had been spread among the people, and received with great avidity, that Richard, Duke of York, second son of Edward the Fourth, had, by a secret escape, saved himself from the cruelty of his uncle, and lay somewhere concealed in England. Simon, taking advantage of this rumor, had at first instructed his pupil to assume that name, which he found to be so fondly cherished by the public. But hearing afterwards a new report that Rorick had made his escape from the tower, and observing that this news was attended with no less general satisfaction, he changed the plan of his imposture, and made Simnel personate that unfortunate prince. Though the youth was qualified by nature for the part which he was instructed to act, Yet it was remarked that he was better informed in circumstances relating to the royal family, particularly in the adventures of the Earl of Warwick, than he could be supposed to have learned from one of Simon's condition. And it was thence conjectured that persons of higher rank, partisans of the House of York, had laid the plan of this conspiracy, and had conveyed proper instructions to the actors. The Queen Dowager herself was exposed to suspicion, and it was indeed the general opinion, however unlikely it might seem, that she had secretly given her consent to the imposture. This woman was of a very restless disposition. Finding that, instead of receiving the reward of her services and contributing to Henry's elevation, she herself was fallen into absolute insignificance, her daughter treated with severity, and all her friends brought under subjection, she had conceived the most violent animosity against him and had resolved to make him feel the effects of her resentment. She knew that the impostor, however successful, might easily at last be set aside, and if a way could be found at his risk to subvert the government, she hoped that a scene might be opened, which, though difficult at present exactly to foresee, would gratify her revenge, and be on the whole less irksome to her than that slavery and contempt to which she was now reduced. But whatever care Simon might take to convey instruction to his pupil Simnel, he was sensible that the imposture would not bear a close inspection, and he was therefore determined to open the first public scene of it in Ireland. That island, which was zealously attached to the House of York, and bore an affectionate regard to the memory of Clarence, Warwick's father, who had been their lieutenant, 
was improvidently allowed by Henry to remain in the same condition in which he found it. And all the counselors and officers who had been appointed by his predecessor still retained their authority. No sooner did Simnel present himself to Thomas Fitzgerald, Earl of Kildare, the deputy, and claim his protection as the unfortunate Warwick, than that credulous nobleman, not suspecting so bold an imposture, gave attention to him, and began to consult some persons of rank with regard to this extraordinary incident. These he found even more sanguine in their zeal and belief than himself, and in proportion as the story diffused itself among those of lower condition, it became the object of still greater passion and credulity, till the people in Dublin, with one consent, tendered their allegiance to Simnel as to the true Plantagenet. Fond of a novelty which flattered their natural propension, they overlooked the daughters of Edward the Fourth, who stood before Warwick in the order of succession. They paid the pretended prince attendance as their sovereign, lodged him in the castle of Dublin, crowned him with a diadem taken from the statue of the Virgin, and publicly proclaimed him king by the appellation of Edward the Sixth. The whole island followed the example of the capital, and not a sword was anywhere drawn in Henry's quarrel. When this intelligence was conveyed to the king, it reduced him to some perplexity. Determined always to face his enemies in person, he yet scrupled at present to leave England, where he suspected the conspiracy was first framed, and where he knew many persons of condition, and the people in general were much disposed to give it countenance. In order to discover the secret source of this contrivance, and take measures against this open revolt, he held frequent consultations with his ministers and counsellors, and laid plans for a vigorous defense of his authority and the suppression of his enemies. The first event which followed these deliberations gave surprise to the public. It was the seizure of the Queen Dowager, the forfeiture of all her lands and revenue, and the close confinement of her person in the nunnery of Bermondsey. The act of authority was covered with a very thin pretense. It was alleged that, notwithstanding the secret agreement to marry her daughter to Henry, she had yet yielded to the solicitations and menaces of Richard, and had delivered that princess and her sisters into the hands of the tyrant. This crime, which was now become obsolete and might admit of alleviations, was therefore suspected not to be the real cause of the severity with which she was treated, and men believed that the king, unwilling to accuse so near a relation of a conspiracy against him, had cloaked his vengeance or precaution under color of an offense known to the whole world. They were afterwards the more confirmed in this suspicion, when they found that the unfortunate queen, though she survived this disgrace several years, was never treated with any more lenity, but was allowed to enter life in poverty, solitude, and confinement. The next measure of the king's was of a less exceptional nature. He ordered that Warwick should be taken from the tower, be led in procession through the streets of London, be conducted to St. Paul's, and there exposed to the view of the whole people. He even gave directions that some men of rank attached to the House of York, and best acquainted with the person of this prince, should approach him and converse with him, and he trusted that these, being convinced of the absurd imposture of Simnel, would put a stop to the credulity of the populace. The expedient had its effect in England, but in Ireland the people still persisted in their revolt and zealously retorted to on the king the reproach of propagating an imposture, and of having shown a counterfeit Warwick to the public. Henry had soon reason to apprehend that the design against him was not laid on such slight foundations as the absurdity of the contrivance seemed to indicate. 
John, Earl of Lincoln, son of John de la Pole, Duke of Suffolk, and of Elizabeth, eldest sister to Edward the Fourth, was engaged to take part in the conspiracy. This nobleman, who possessed capacity and courage, had entertained very aspiring views, and his ambition was encouraged by the known intentions of his uncle Richard, who had formed a design, in case he himself should die without issue, of declaring Lincoln successor to the crown. The king's jealousy against all eminent persons of the York party, and his rigor towards Warwick, had further struck Lincoln with apprehensions, and made him resolve to seek for safety in the most dangerous councils. Having fixed a secret correspondence with Sir Thomas Broughton, a man of great interest in Lancashire, he retired to Flanders, where Lovell had arrived a little before him, and he lived during some time in the court of his aunt, the Duchess of Burgundy, by whom he had been invited over. Margaret, widow of Charles the Bold, Duke of Burgundy, not having any children of her own, attached herself with an entire friendship to her daughter-in-law, married to Maximilian, Archduke of Austria and after the death of that princess, she persevered in her affection to Philip and Margaret for children, and occupied herself in the care of their education and of their persons. By her virtuous conduct and demeanor, she had acquired great authority among the Flemings, and lived with much dignity, as well as economy, upon that ample dowry which she inherited from her husband. The resentments of this princess were no less warm than her friendships, and that spirit of faction, which it is so difficult for a social and sanguine temper to guard against, had taken strong possession of her heart, and entrenched somewhat on the probity which shone forth in the other parts of her character. Hearing of the malignant jealousy entertained by Henry against her family, and the suppression of all its partisans, she was moved with the highest indignation, and she determined to make him repent of that enmity to which so many of her friends, without any reason or necessity, had fallen victims. After consulting with Lincoln and Lovell, she hired a body of 2,000 veteran Germans, under the command of Martin Stuart, a brave and experienced officer, and sent them over together with these two noblemen to join Simnel in Ireland. The countenance given by persons of such high rank, and the accession of this military force, much raised the courage of the Irish, and made them entertain the resolution of invading England, where they believed the spirit of disaffection as prevalent as it appeared to be in Ireland. The poverty also under which they labored made it impossible for them to support any longer their new court and army, and inspired them with a strong desire of enriching themselves by plunder and preferment in England. Henry was not ignorant of these intentions of his enemies, and he prepared himself for defense. He ordered troops to be levied in different parts of the kingdom, and put them under the command of the Duke of Bedford and Earl of Oxford. He confined the Marquis of Dorset who, he suspected, would resent the injuries suffered by his mother, the Queen Dowager, and to gratify the people by an appearance of devotion, he made a pilgrimage to Our Lady of Walsingham, famous for miracles, and there offered up prayers for success and for deliverance from his enemies. Being informed that Simnel was landed at Foudry in Lancashire, he drew together his forces and advanced towards the enemy as far as Coventry. The rebels had entertained hopes that the disaffected counties in the north would rise in their favor, but the people in general, averse to join Irish and German invaders, convinced of Lambert's imposture, and kept in awe by the king's reputation for success and conduct, either remained in tranquility or gave assistance to the royal army. 
The Earl of Lincoln, therefore, who commanded the rebels, finding no hopes but in victory, was determined to bring the matter to a speedy decision. And the king, supported by the native courage of his temper, and emboldened by a great accession of volunteers, who had joined him under the Earl of Shrewsbury and Lord Strange, declined not the combat. The hostile armies met at Stoke, in the county of Nottingham, and fought a battle which was bloody and more obstinately disputed than could be expected from the inequality of their force. All the leaders of the rebels were resolved to conquer or to perish, and they inspired their troops with like resolution. The Germans also, being veteran and experienced soldiers, kept the event long doubtful, and even the Irish, though ill-armed and almost defenseless, showed themselves not defective in spirit and bravery. The king's victory was purchased with loss, but was entirely decisive. Lincoln, Broughton, and Swart perished in the field of battle, with four thousand of their followers. As Lovell was never more heard of, he was believed to have undergone the same fate. Simnel, with his tutor Simon, was taken prisoner. Simon, being a priest, was not tried at law, and was only committed to close custody. Simnel was too contemptible to be an object either of apprehension or resentment to Henry. He was pardoned and made a scullion in the king's kitchen, whence he was afterwards advanced to the rank of falconer. Henry had now leisure to revenge himself on his enemies. He made a progress into the northern parts, where he gave many proofs of his rigorous disposition. A strict inquiry was made after those who had assisted or favored the rebels. The punishments were not all sanguinary. The king made his revenge subservient to his avarice. Heavy fines were levied upon the delinquents. The proceedings of the courts, and even the courts themselves, were arbitrary. Either criminals were tried by commissioners appointed for the purpose, or they suffered punishment by sentence of a court-martial. And as a rumor had prevailed before the Battle of Stoke that the rebels had gained the victory, that the royal army was cut in pieces, and that the king himself had escaped by flight, Henry rose resolved to interpret the belief or propagation of this report as a mark of disaffection, and he punished many for that pretended crime. But such in this age was the situation of the English government, that the royal prerogative, which was but imperfectly restrained during the most peaceable periods, was sure in tumultuous or even suspicious times, which frequently recurred, to break all bounds of law and to violate public liberty. After the king had gratified his rigor by the punishment of his enemies, he determined to give contentment to the people in a point which, though a mere ceremony, was passionately desired by them. The queen had been married near two years, but had not yet been crowned, and this affection of delay had given great discontent to the public, and had been one principal source of the disaffection which prevailed. The king, instructed by experience, now finished the ceremony of her coronation, and to show a disposition still more gracious, he restored to liberty the Marquis of Dorset, who had been able to clear himself of all the suspicions entertained against him. End of section two, chapter twenty four, part two. Recording by Dustin Tuttle.